Are you recording? I don't want to miss this punchline. I'm pretty excited for this punchline, too. Genuine reaction to the yeah. punchline. Okay. All right. I'm we're recording. all excited for the punchline, Peter. Your story's. But not too excited. It's still chill. You can just tell us the story. We'll laugh either yeah. way. So you're Brad Millers. You have built this up way more than I ever anticipated me casually talking about being at Brad Miller's. Being. That's the punchline! <laughs> 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 Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, certified guardian of Mockingbird Hill. (laughs) I'm co-host Jeremy Ruggles, extremely loyal subscriber to Harper's Magazine. I am co-host Peter Cook, and I am an early innovator of overdubbing. (laughs) <laughs> how are you uh, <laughs> maybe a late innovator of overdubbing <laughs> i am chris brokaw special guest on the episode and i am involved with musical endeavors for my living and my passion nice welcome chris thanks true or false chris you were recently played live on my favorite radio station wfmu that is true. Uh, actually, that's partly true. We recorded a set of music at a studio in Brooklyn, and then it was broadcast on WFMU about a week later. Oh, good enough. <laughs> they're, yeah, they're, I guess they're not actually doing live sessions at, the, at that studio right now, so, but, but they are recording things remotely elsewhere. Cool. Well, before we dive into the record selection for this week, you want to tell the people a little bit about yourself, um, some of the, the bands you've been in and what you're doing with music? Let's see. My, my name is Chris Brokaw. I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I make solo records and I play in a few bands these days, the, the Martha's Vineyard Fairies, Charnel Ground, and sometimes the Lemonheads. And I've been in some bands called Come and Codeine, which are also sort of semi-operative endeavors as well. And uh, Consonant and Pullman and The New Year. And uh, my first album, my first record was with Gigi Allen and the AIDS Brigade, and it was called Expose Yourself to Kids. Wow. Wow. I was just, Chris, just a few weeks back, I was watching a 1994 interview with Liz Fair on 120 Minutes, and she mentioned your name as uh-huh. someone who influenced her to start recording her own music. Yes, I, I did. <laughs> I did. I think, I think I encouraged her. I was encouraging to her at a time when that was helpful to her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She, she had played me a couple of songs and I thought they were really great. And I said, oh, you should make me a tape. So she made me two tapes. And those tapes ended up getting 
disseminated around and I think ended up getting her signed to Matador. Yeah, that was the girly sound stuff, right? Yep. Yep. In- yep. Incredible. Yeah. So you've been, you've been involved in a few things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a couple <laughs> things here and there. Sure. <laughs> yeah. A certified professional guest here to give his professional music industry opinion on which record, Chris, have you selected for this week? This is the Chester and Lester album on RCA Records by the great Chet Atkins and Les Paul. Have you put out more records than Chet Atkins yet? I don't think so. That's a tall bar, but you have a lot of bands, so. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question, but I, I think he probably made more records than I did. Yeah, especially if you count all the stuff he played on or produced. He's, you know. Yeah, that's that 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 puts it into a much different galaxy. Yeah, he's got to be in like the four figures of albums probably or singles that he's been a part of. Yep. All right, cool. Well, I'm really excited to dive into this record. This is one of my favorites, something I've wanted to talk about on the show for a long time. So. Let's go ahead and get started with the first song, Side A, Track 1. It's been a long, long time. This was 1976. Was that correct? They really nailed the uh, throwback production on this one. Because obviously this is does not sound like normal 70s production. Right. Yeah. I mean, these are veteran players using, you know, the same vintage gear they've been rocking for decades in the studio setting that they're very familiar with. So 
kind of like an, an effortless throwback more so than a lot of the intentional ones that you hear nowadays. Well, it sounds too like they, I don't know how this album was mixed, but there's certainly a lot of use of room mics because which, which becomes evident as the record goes on where basically like Les Paul and Chet Atkins are just kind of like yelling at each other, you know, sort of as the songs are going on. Yeah. Yeah. They're just yucking it up in the middle of songs. Those are, those are some of my favorite moments on the record where someone plays some quote from something and, you know, they just, they start like, just like yelling shit at each other and cracking each other up, <laughs> um, which is, which is not, it's one of the things that I like about this record and, and definitely something that I hadn't really heard before. I mean, I mean, I've heard albums where it sounds like, like it's very relaxed and they're, they're just doing it for fun. And I mean, particularly like the sessions that Johnny Cash and Bob Dylan did for Nashville Skyline. Yeah. Um, like they, they recorded like um, the one song, but then they also recorded like 20 covers that day, which was a bootleg for a long time. And, and then finally got, I think got, have you, heard, have you guys heard that stuff before? I've meant to check that out. I know that they put that out. Oh, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's like, it's one of my favorite things by either of those guys. Like they're just, they're just like playing a bunch of covers and, and kind of screwing around and again, kind of like making jokes. It, it's, it, it actually has, it's not dissimilar to, to this record in in that, in that vibe of like two real pros, just kind of like having a good time with old songs that they like. Well, the girl from the North country, I always noticed that that sounded like it was just kind of in the moment, Johnny Cash and, yeah, well, they recorded like twenty other songs that day, and and that yeah. and it's it's awesome. It's it's really worth checking out. Well, back to this record, I very much enjoyed like the level to which they made it feel relaxed. Like you feel like you're just chilling in a room with them, and they're just cracking jokes at each other, and you're kind of nodding and smiling, and and they rip some licks and. It's got a, a feel that, you know, maybe has been replicated since, but I don't, I can't think of a record that has that degree of that from before the yeah. 70s. Right. I mean, it's also, I mean, what's also great about this, about this record is that you get to really see how different they are from one another as, as guitar players and just what each of their statements sounds like. And so I, I came in, I mean, I, I got the record initially because I was starting to get into Chad Atkins. And I mean, as you were saying before, there's like a thousand Chad Atkins records to choose from. All super cheap, but you don't necessarily want to kind of sit through all of them. But I, I have, like, I have one box set. I have a Chad Atkins, one of those Bear family box sets of, of Chad Atkins. That, that, that's really great. And, and in some ways kind of all i need although i actually have uh, a chet atkins christmas record that i usually end up listening to every year but anyway so I, I i really i got the record more for chet atkins than anything else and and i didn't really know much of les paul's stuff but you can you can completely hear the difference between the you know who's who's playing what uh just because they're each of their styles is so distinctive and especially like Les Paul's playing tends to be more sort of rhythmically all over the place and, and more like he's like more like he's kind of jabbing at the other guy. Flashy. 
not ex- not even. I mean, they're both pretty flashy, but Chet Atkins playing tends tends to be much mellower, mm-hmm. and Les Pauls is much more, like I said, kind of like he's jabbing at you. Yeah, yeah. I feel like the guitar playing in a lot of ways is very similar to the room like uh, banter that you hear where like Les Paul is being like kind of combative and like really ribbon Chet the whole time. And Chet's just like playing along or like maybe getting a couple shots in, but he's very, a lot more reserved <laughs> in how he's doing that. And you can hear that same dynamic in the guitar playing. It's, it's super fun. Good observation. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, I, I think Les Paul was probably more of the instigator of sort of the, the vibe that the record has and, Jed Atkins was probably like, can we actually make a record? (laughs) So from my research, there's a couple of reasons why this record has this kind of laid back vibe. Like we're talking about the first uh, meeting between these two guys where they got to actually play together was a kind of a chance meeting on the road. And they hung out in a hotel room all night and did basically the same thing, just like playing songs with each other, having a great time. And it was so much fun that they talked about doing it again. And made this record as a result. And then the interesting thing about this session is that these are actually technically the rehearsals. Chet Atkins did not think that this was the record when they were recording these songs. They had just booked the studio date to like run over some songs, work out a few ideas. And at the end of it, Chet was like, all right, cool. We'll see everybody on Monday to actually cut these. And Les Paul was like, I'm out of here. This is the record. Have fun. (laughs) Like you can re-record your parts if you want, but mine's good. That's funny. Amazing. it reminded me a little bit of uh, the story of Trout Mask Replica, where Zappa thought when the the Magic Band came in and cut everything that they were just doing run-throughs of the songs, and he was just recording them to get level checks and stuff, and then they'd get through all the 20-something songs, and Beefheart's like, all right, record's done. you know, <laughs> And uh, Zappa's <laughs> like, wait, what? And that's another album that has studio banter and stu- you know things that sound like outtakes on it as well. Yeah, you know, I've always thought of this record as kind of a Trout Mask Part 2, really. (laughs) Two personalities coming together to make a unique object. (laughs) So uh, I actually came to this record from the other direction of starting to get into Les Paul and finding some Les Paul and Mary Ford records in the dollar bin and being completely blown away by them. And then watching the Les Paul documentary Chasing Sound years ago and was just totally in awe of him as a musician, as an inventor and just, you know, the the figure that he was and what he accomplished with his career. And then I I came to this record afterwards and was just so into it. And, you know, the first thing that struck me was like, we were talking about just that laid back vibe. You really feel like they're making a record for each other, not for the audience. Like they're doing exactly what they want to do and having fun with it, which is a unique thing for a record and even more unique for a Grammy winning you know, successful record like this. Well, amazing. I didn't know that it was that at least one of them thought it was the rehearsal. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a funny, That's cool. funny story. And again, it just like fits with the, the dynamic that you hear from those two guys. They're just coming yeah. at this from different angles. So these are two figures who are like massively important for the history of music. And we could do, more than one full episode on both of them. So I'm just going to try and like real quick dive through a little bit of the bio on Les Paul, and then we can talk a little bit more about Chet in the next section. But 
During this record, Les Paul was in his 60s. He was born in 1915 on June 9th, and he officially began his career in 1928 at the age of 13, mostly performing hillbilly songs for local radio stations. He learned harmonica before learning guitar, and actually around the age of 13 invented the first flippable harmonica holder where you could just like flip to the other side of the harmonica with just your chin. And apparently that basic design is still in production to this day. A early formative experience for him was going to see the legendary country musician, Gene Autry at a young age, you know, about 13, 14 still. And Gene invited him to come on stage and play a song with them. And then kind of told him like, Hey, like you're going to go places. You got talent. And then interestingly enough, later on in 1946, Gene was the one that introduced Les Paul and his wife, Mary Ford. (laughs) Les moved to Chicago in the early 30s and switched from playing primarily country and hillbilly music to playing a lot of jazz music, especially after hearing the guitarist Django Reinhardt for the first time. He said it just completely changed his approach to guitar and kind of rocked his world. And because of where he was at at that time, he was able to play with a lot of pretty legendary jazz musicians. There's recorded evidence of him jamming with guys like Art Tatum, Duke Ellington, Lester Young, Coleman Hawkins, just to name a few. Wow. And then he moved to New York City in the mid-30s and began playing a lot more jazz. Notably, he would play at jazz clubs till about six in the morning and then go to his day job at the radio stations doing family f- friendly country music for the different like variety shows. And then he moved to LA in the early forties during world war two and worked for the armed forces radio with his jazz trio and actually like gained a significant following during world war two as one of the few musicians who was being broadcast on the army radio. So a lot of these troops that were, out were listening to the Les Paul trio and were really into him by the time they came back to the States. And then around that time, he played guitar on the Bing Crosby mega hit. It's been a long, long time, which we heard the version of on this album. Again, that's an album. That's a song that like, I know, I'm sure people have heard that or versions of it on soundtracks, but it was a like massive cultural event of a song. You know, it was a song about troops returning from world war two that came out as the troops were coming back from world war two. And it was just a song that was everywhere at the time. And then Les Paul's career really took off shortly after that, partly from the exposure of his army days. But in 1950, he dropped an album called the new sound. And it's notable because it was the first time that most people had ever heard multi-track recording because he had basically invented it and invented like the, the overdubbing that was used on it. So he released this record with multiple guitar parts that he had recorded where he had changed the speed on a bunch of them. So he's like playing these guitar lines that people physically can't replicate on guitars because the fretboard didn't go high enough. And because people didn't know what these studio tricks were, they were, he was just a complete mystery. He was like literally being referred to as a wizard at this point, because people just had no idea how he was making the sounds he was for these records. And then shortly after that, him and his wife, Mary Ford started recording as a duo. And during the early to mid fifties, they were actually one of the most popular acts in America. They had multiple hits at all times. They're just ruling the charts on tons of different uh, radio and TV 
appearances. You can still find a lot of YouTube footage of some of their like kind of weirder daytime television appearances for advertising products and things like that. And then also in 1951, the first Les Paul guitar officially went into production despite him pitching the idea of a solid body guitar to Gibson a full 10 years earlier. It just took Gibson until uh, Fender had produced the Stratocaster to believe that this crazy guy with a hollow, with a solid body guitar was actually worth going into business with. But that guitar took off, obviously, like right away, and we all know what the Les Paul guitar is now. So that was the early to mid-50s. Shortly after that, his career kind of took a nosedive as soon as rock and roll started to come around and... You know, all of the earlier generation of musicians that he was a part of lost audiences seemingly overnight. And by 1965, Les and Mary were divorced, and Les had actually fully retired and reportedly stopped playing guitar. So this Chester and Lester record was actually his big comeback and was the result of Chet Atkins convincing him to come out of retirement. Far out. So he had been, so he had been retired for 20 years? 10 years at this point. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. I I didn't know anything about that. Yeah. And I can only imagine like what his attitude towards this stuff could have been at that point, you know, because like so many of the early rock bands are playing Les Paul guitars and having these huge careers at the same time. when like, he's the guy who invented the instrument has his name on it, but his career is completely dead. And he's just like watching (laughs) this whole new generation of people run with it. And he's just like being forgotten about, you know, a decade after he was top of the charts and rock bands, like the Beatles and all the prog rock that came after that are using his multi-track techniques to create their wall of sound and all the uh, crazy sounds that they're also lifting off him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, all the records that are coming out at that point wouldn't exist without the technological advancements that he had made. It's crazy. So anyway, that's the quick context and history of Les Paul. Do you guys want to hear another song? Sure. All right, next one we're going to play is Side A, Track 3. This is the, the jazz standard Caravan. Thank you. 
That's one of them they really start cooking on. The slow ones are my favorites, but some of the stuff they do on that one in particular and a few of the other, you know, higher tempo ones is face melting. It's shredding at its best. It really is. It's it's shredding without much of the uh, toxic masculinity that you would normally associate with guitar shredding of this level. Yeah, or the like sustained distortion that you know does the work and covers up the the non cleanness of many shredders. True. These boys shred. You know, they shred it naked. <laughs> I guess there's actually a lot of echo and stuff, but oh yeah. Things are s- steeped in echo on this. Yeah, it's really loony playing. Like it, it sounds like um, it sounds like very like really old cartoon music or something. <laughs> I mean, that's you know, it sounds like from like like a Bugs Bunny or some sort of Merry Melodies. Kind <laughs> that's of true. Yeah, which I, I've, I've which I think when I heard it, I was like, that was one of my first go-tos with it I, I think in in my brain i was kind of like where have i heard this music before i've heard i've heard a lot of stuff like this in in cartoons and i don't know that this was the first time that i'd heard the song caravan but it was the first time that it it became approachable to me in um or i don't know it's just um doing it in this context it's almost like they were like turning a a jazz song into a, a rock song but in, in this, like in this very, really humorous sort of way. And I think it's like, it's one of the things that I've really grown to love about a lot of country music guitar and country music lead guitar. It's just, it just sounds totally lonely. Really, it's really funny. I mean, it, in, 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 in the best way. Yeah, the, the presence of the studio banter is kind of insight into these guys, and they seem like really playful people. And it, that yeah. comes through in the playing, too. Yes, totally. Yeah, from all the interviews and research, they both seem like pretty genuinely fun dudes to have been able to hang out with. So I can only imagine how good of a time they were having during these sessions and the jam sessions leading up to it. Well, you can tell us uh, the entirety of Chet Atkins' career and bio right now. <laughs> <laughs> all right, ready to take a deep breath and dive into it. Chet Atkins was born June 20th, 1924. So he's about 10 years younger than Les Paul. Les was actually a big influence on him growing up. He would hear these Les Les Paul songs occasionally on the radio and just couldn't figure out how he was possibly doing these guitar lines that he was, but spent a lot of time as a young person trying to figure out how to recreate these sounds from he was that he was hearing from People like Les Paul and also uh, Django Reinhardt, who we mentioned before, and another big, big influence on a young Chet Atkins was the great country guitarist Merle Travis. Mm. Yeah. Um, Chet and Merle actually did a very similar collaboration record to this in 1970, which was part of the influence of making this record because that one also has kind of a laid back air to it and was not quite as successful as this, but successful enough to try and repeat the formula a little bit. Chet was known as Mr. Guitar or the country gentleman or his uh, self-chosen nickname CGP, certified guitar player. What a 
goof-ass nickname. I know. <laughs> he had a short list of people that he also considered to be uh, certified guitar players. There was not many people on the list. Wow. He grew up very, very poor in the Appalachian region. He was a self-taught musician who learned to play on uh, basically broken guitars at first until his older brother Jim gave him a Gibson guitar later on that was actually handed down to him from Les Paul because his older half-brother Jim at one point was a member of the Les Paul trio when he was coming up in the Chicago and New York jazz scenes of the 30s and 40s. Chet Atkins suffered from critical asthma condition which required him to often sleep in a straight-backed upright chair. And on those nights, he would fall asleep playing the guitar um, and then just sleep all night with the guitar in his lap, which apparently was a habit that he kept his entire life. He would work at the studio all day, come home and just practice guitar in his chair and fall asleep. He came up playing radio and club gigs similar to Les Paul. They both kind of came up in the hillbilly music scenes and early days of radio. And like Les Paul, he was very interested in jazz and pop from an early age as well. He just didn't have as many opportunities to play jazz like Les Paul did, so there was more of a traditional country sound to his playing. He signed RCA Victor in 1947 and began producing music for other people, playing on other people's records, and releasing records of his own. He didn't really have any big hits under his own name at first, but he still steadily and gradually rose to prominence in the Nashville scene with a reputation as an A-list musician, songwriter, and producer. And then in the 50s, he began to help establish what would become known as the Nashville Sound. This was kind of a method that changed the general vibe of country music that was happening, where they reduced some of the acoustic instruments and added more electric sounds and gave it more of a pop shine which allowed country artists to cross over into the pop charts for the first time ever and quickly widened the audience for country music in general. Because not too long before this, it was not nearly the same reputation as it has now. It was more of an outsider style of music that most people considered to be something that like the only, only the poorer classes could enjoy. Mm -hmm. So Chet was one of the first people to kind of add respectability and a lot more money to the style of music. I'm going to go ahead and say you're not listening to the new season of Cocaine and Rhinestones, Sean. <laughs> I am not listening to the new season of Cocaine and Rhinestones. What, do you, what would you like to add from that? Uh, it's just all about uh, who's actually responsible for the Nashville sound, and I forget the guy's name, but it's all this one guy who did it all before Chet. Oh, interesting. Well, I mean, he's, yeah, Chet doesn't claim in, you know, his... Uh, Wikipedia page does not claim that he invented it single-handedly, but he was a key figure in oh, establishing sure. it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so his reputation with this earned him both success and critical acclaim, but it also got him a lot of hate from country musicians and fans who considered him to no longer be a real country musician because he had sold out and crossed over into the pop music sound. That's the never-ending struggle of country, though. That yeah, has literally sure. been going on as long as country has existed. And will never end. Yeah, yeah. So during the 50s and 60s, he started to get a lot more success, both with his music and with other people's. And around that time was signed on as a 
consultant for a design consultant for Gretsch Guitars, who manufactured a Chet Atkins signature line called the Country Gentleman for decades, which are now like those are good guitars. Yeah, highly sought after guitars for sure. He was eventually actually promoted to vice president of RCA Victor, and. In the 1960s, he continued to um, earn both praise and hate, respectively, for his decision to sign the black country musician Charlie Pride in the middle of the civil rights movement, which was seen to be a very controversial move at the time, but good on him for that. My last bit of info on Chet, uh, by the 1970s, he had become increasingly fed up and disillusioned with the music industry, and especially with RCA Victor, and then... After a diagnosis of colon cancer in 1973, he quit his administrative duties and went back to his first love, the guitar. And during the 70s and 80s, he actually cut a whole series of different collaboration albums. Like I said, the one with Merle Travis was kind of the early one that started that. And then there's also a few records he did with Jerry Reed that are excellent, as well as records with artists like Doc Watson, Floyd Kramer, Boots Randolph, and others. Yeah, and there's no shortage of Chet Atkins records out there. As I guess we we kind of mentioned at the top, <laughs> there's a lot of them out yeah. there. And I haven't even heard, you know, a, a small portion of them, it would seem. But I've, I've never heard a bad Chet Atkins record. I've heard some that I thought were just okay, and I've heard some that were great. But definitely a guy worth picking up in the dollar bin, and you will have plenty of options. Yeah. Chris, you actually, you told me that you got your copy signed by one of the two main guys. I did. There was a period, well, it was a pretty long time, I guess, where Les Paul was playing every Monday night at a club in New York City called Iridium. I mean, I think he played there for 20 years or something. So I guess I want to say around 2000 three or four i took my father to go see les paul my my father lives in manhattan and we got tickets to go see the show and the show was fantastic he was playing with it's like him and three other guitar players i i don't think there was a drummer and i don't and i don't think there was a, a bass player it was it was all guitar like very but it the music had tons of rhythm and and the other players were younger amazing and there was a and one of the players was it was a very very attractive young woman who he was not a total lech with at least at the show that i saw but <laughs> i think he had a tendency to to kind of go that way from from what I understand show that I saw was great. And then I, I talked to a friend of mine who lives in New York and I said, Oh, I went, me and my dad went to go see Les Paul the other night. And my friend said, so how many songs did he play? And I was like, I don't know, he played 10 or 12 or something. He said that, that the time that he went, Les Paul played like three songs and just like told dirty jokes the rest of the time. <laughs> so and you, you caught and, a good night. <laughs> Yeah, apparently I, I caught a very good night where where he wasn't just sort of making dirty jokes at the expense at, at the expense of the of the comely woman to his left. I don't know. I, I I was definitely going through a phase where I was like, 
bringing my jazz records to jazz gigs and, and getting them signed. <laughs> Which is not probably not something I, I would do so much of the moment. I'm not, not that there's anything wrong with that, but for, for some reason I, I was, there was this period where I was really possessed to do that. So I brought a few records with me and I, and I didn't, I didn't even have that many Les Paul records at, at the time. I also did not bring my Gibson Les Paul with me, which I think was something that people tended to do was, was they would bring their, their Les Paul to go see Les Paul and have him sign it. And I, I felt ambivalent about having anyone's signature on my guitar. It's just, I don't yeah, know. It seems weird to me. It's like, there's, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. It, it just, um, it seems, I don't know. It seems kind of distracting or something. It seems like you're turning a tool into like a collector item in my mind. Well, there's that. And, and I don't, I don't know that people, I don't know that that even necessarily brings up the value, you know, like I think, well, I mean, most people I know who would want to buy a guitar wouldn't, I don't think would want anybody's autograph on it. Right. I mean, certainly there, there have been times where I've, I've looked at guitars or I, I looked at guitars online and I was like, Oh, I, you know, I might even want to buy that guitar if it didn't have, you know, if it didn't say like, you know, Ron Ashton across the front of it or something, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but no offense to Ron Ashton or Les Paul, but yeah, I, so I have, I have a signed, signed by one of them copy of Chester and Lester. And, uh, and it, it was, I mean, I, the thing is, at, at the time, I, I was I was so in, into Chet Atkins, and I really I just wanted to take lessons from him, which I knew, given that he lived in Tennessee and you know was a old, sort of older, fairly godlike figure. There, there, I knew that that was never actually going to happen. But that was that was that was kind of my dream at the time was that I could take lessons. From, well, Chris, I'll from Chet. I'll say yeah, like something in knowing your music and listening to this record is your selection. I wasn't familiar with this album prior to uh, it being suggested for this episode. I noticed how lyrical and expressive their playing is. And I really hear that in a lot of your playing on your records too. Well, thank you. That's, uh, that's nice to hear. Peter's good at making our guests blush. (laughs) (laughs) I'm gonna hem and haw for a second, but thank you. I I, I appreciate that. But yeah, I mean, as his playing is, is is so beautiful, and it's also incredibly physically difficult to play. And and I have sat down and, and tried to learn some of that stuff, and it's it's really it's murder. Yeah, to me. I mean. Yeah, yeah, they, and they make it sound like this fun, casual, effortless thing. Yeah, it's not. It's it's really that's a. That, that was a ruse. <laughs> well, I mean, if you're playing guitar like 12 hours a day, like Chet Atkins was, I kind of, you're going to, you can't help but reach some kind of godlike level after a yep. certain point, I think. Yep. I think that's true. Well, do you guys want to hear another song? Give oh. us the Avalon. <laughs> Side B, track one, Avalon. Thank you. 
once again, we have a record that I think rewards, but does not require close attention. You could easily have this on in the background when you're doing some chores or hanging out with friends and it's, you know, you get those fun vibes right away. But then when you sit down and really pay close attention, like we said, all this like incredible guitar playing, the energy of it, it comes through more. It's, it's a record that you can play a lot and not get bored of. And that song in particular, if we were to keep playing, we can't keep playing it without, uh, you know, lawyers jumping down our throats. But if you were to keep going, you would hear them just cracking jokes mid-song. They're just like yucking it up and talking in like the middle of the song. Yeah, that reminded me of the Bo Diddley song, Say Man, where him and Jerome Green are riffing back and forth on each other. Oh, that's a great comparison, yeah. Yeah, first thing I thought of when I heard that section of this, of that song. Well, do you guys want to hear about this playlist that I made of similar artists and songs? Yeah. I'm ready for it. So, Peter already made our guest blush last discussion by saying that he thought the, the songs had a lyrical quality inspired by these guys. I will say, I put a Chris Brokaw track from his latest album, Puritan, on here. included the song the night has no eyes and i kind of thought while putting this on here it does fit remarkably well with a lot of the stuff that's going on even though it's you know different decades and technically different genres of music it's kind of amazing how much of a connection there really is when you put uh supposedly opposite things side by side wow right on thank you yeah absolutely (laughs) so On this playlist, I put a whole bunch of Les Paul and Mary Ford stuff. There's a lot of different Chet Atkins-related material, his solo stuff, plus some of his other collaborations with guys like Jerry Reed, and then other artists that he either played with or played on the record. Um, You can hear some Doc Watson on there, some Gene Autry. I put a Beatles track on there that they had said was actually heavily inspired by Chet Atkins, All My Loving, from the With the Beatles album. Yeah, that's interesting. Paul McCartney actually said on top of that not only were they very influenced by chet atkins but one of the first gigs that the beatles ever played they did a les paul and mary ford cover is one of their first songs really wow yeah so interesting crossover of uh inspiration there yeah if i think about kind of the frantic energy of all my loving in the in the guitar solo yeah i can hear that influence definitely there's also some uh, jazz-related stuff on here to show the, the variety of influence between these two guys. I have some Coleman Hawkins on there. And there's also Charlie Pride, who we mentioned, Merle Travis, Art Tatum. There's a Perry Como track on here that Chet Atkins produced. Clint Black doing Ode to Chet. Um, <laughs> Clint there's a Black. Don Gibson song, Dwayne Eddy, Lester Young, Elvis Presley, Django Reinhardt, who we mentioned. Uh, Dolly Parton's mega hit Jolene, which features one or two of the same uh, session players as this record. There's also a collaboration, a live collaboration between Les Paul and Steve Miller. Steve Miller actually grew up getting guitar lessons from Les Paul because he was a family yeah. friend. So you can hear some like, interesting live stage banter between the two of them and Les making some thinly veiled dirty jokes, as awesome. we've established was his thing. So yeah, you can find that whole playlist, 41 songs, two hours, all on Spotify. Just search I'd Buy That Podcast, all one word to find this 
and every other playlist that we have put together. Yeah, I saw that there is another guitarist on this record other than Les Paul and Chet Atkins. It's Ray Edenton. Uh, I believe there's actually three other rhythm guitarists at different times on this oh, record. Wow. I don't think they're all playing on every track. And it was Ray. Yeah, Ray Edenton, Paul Yandel, who was um, Chet's like right hand man on man on many of his recordings, and a guy named Bobby Thompson all played rhythm guitar at different points. Okay, yeah, I saw Ray. Ray is still around. He's ninety four years old. Whoa. Well, it's it's good to know when you sit down and try to learn a Chet Atkins song, is that it sounds like it's one guitar player. It's all, or it sounds like. It sounds like one person doing both rhythm and lead because the the tone is so similar between the two, but then maybe you find out afterwards, actually there are two players on this. (laughs) So (laughs) there there are times where you go to play the stuff and you're like, okay, I'm pretty sure it's one guitar player, but this this all just sounds physically impossible. And then you find out, okay, actually he had like kind of like a right-hand man who was playing rhythm throughout. So I read a story that Chet Atkins, when he was a kid listening to the radio and trying to figure out songs by ear, he was hearing early Merle Travis songs and assumed that there was no way that he could do those guitar lines with just the thumb and first finger. So he developed a four finger finger picking style mm-hmm. on his own. And then later on found out that Merle Travis was indeed just doing all of the finger picking with two fingers. <laughs> awesome. So yeah, that the whole energy of trying to figure out these impossible songs just never ends. And, you know, I I will say that Les Paul and Chet Atkins, they both knew that they were kind of the best, but they also never stopped learning and admiring people that they would consider to be better than themselves. Both those guys have stated that they think Django Reinhardt is the greatest guitarist of all time, by the way. Wow. That's interesting. I bet, I bet Willie Nelson would probably say the same thing. Sure. I think Willie Nelson probably has said the same thing. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Les Paul actually owned a guitar previously owned by Django Reinhardt. Saw that in the the documentary that I watched. Well, I think that's close to about it for this episode. Chris, do you want to plug any upcoming or current projects you got going on? I don't think there's really much. Well, I take that back. There's, I mean, I put out a couple of, of records this year. I put out a solo record called Puritan, and a band I'm in called Martha's Vineyard Fairies put out a record called Suns Out, Guns Out. So we're very proud of those and just beginning to go out and play live and play all that music live. So that's all starting to happen now. My old band, Come, is beginning a series of reissues. We recently signed with Fire Records in London. Oh, cool. We're going to start reissuing all four records over the next two and a half years. So I think in October, our second album, Don't Ask, Don't Tell, is coming out as a double album with some B-sides and some unreleased stuff. And there's going to be a separate album of the two Peel sessions that we did coming out. And I think that's that's actually going to be like a record store day or some record store day record or something. Nice. Um, so yeah, that's what's uh, that's what's coming. I, I did a, a duo record with my friend Jeff Barsky. We have a sort of more sort of experimental guitar duo 
called Sunset to the Sea, and there's going to be a tape of that music coming out on Tape Drift Records of Albany, New York, hopefully sometime uh, this summer. Right on. There's a lot. I love Jeff Barsky's guitar playing as well, so I'm looking forward to hearing that. Yeah. There's a lot in the works. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> what a what a great and humble guest was like. Oh, I don't know if I have anything to plug really. Oh, here's uh these five albums I made this year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All the all the plus. all the coding stuff got reissued by Numero in the last decade, didn't it, Chris? It did. Yeah, everything got reissued in 2012, but we're actually in some dialogues i shouldn't even be saying this out loud but we're in some dialogues with them right now about releasing sort of an unreleased album that we recorded in 1992 well so that that may be coming out next oh, year oh wow very cool exciting stuff you heard it here first <laughs> <laughs> i'd buy that for a dollar exclusive <laughs> don't tell anyone to our seven listeners it's a secret still <laughs> excellent so yeah i i mean i live in boston which is you know a fairly expensive city and i mean there are dollar records out there but Sean and I were having this conversation early earlier of, about this. I, in general, I would say that all of the Chet Atkins and Les Paul records I have are all three dollar records. Yeah, and I, I I guess the dollar records that I've found that I was excited about, or or that, or that I continue to be excited about, I bought in a different in a different city than this one. Yeah. So initially, I, I had suggested the, the first specials record because I love that record so much, and it actually has this giant one dollar sticker on it. So I know that's what I paid for it. <laughs> but Sean was like, "No, that's like a thirty dollar record now." <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> and I and I think that that generally speaking, a, a lot of what what were one dollar records five years you know five years ago are are no longer anywhere near that. Yeah. And that's probably true for Chester and Lester as well. Yeah, this is one of those records where if you look hard enough, you can definitely find it cheap. But I also would not be surprised to see stores trying to get, you know, five, ten dollars for it at times yeah. because there's a certain yeah. amount of notoriety with it. But, yeah. you know, as we've said many times before, country related records often get undervalued. And, you know, honestly, the album cover for this is kind of cheesy looking. Like, if you didn't know who these guys were and how cool this record is, you would just flip right past this and never think about it. It's it's cheesy and, and also kind of cheap looking. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. Like, sort of graphically, it's not... They didn't really knock it out of the park on it, but but I love the record so much. I, you know, it's, it's fine. I don't care what the cover Yeah, is. very forgivable album cover for how good the content is, for <laughs> although, sure. <laughs> although, to be fair the the subsequent chester and lester record has even worse album covers than cover art than this one true the was a guitar but monsters but we're not but we're not even gonna get into that record yeah <laughs> cool all right well i think that's about it thanks so much for joining us chris and yeah my pleasure thanks for asking me absolutely great record selection thanks everybody for listening and we'll see you around i'm sean hartman i'm jeremy ruggles i'm peter cook I'm Chris Brokaw, signing off. What are you leaving us on, Sean? We are going to 
leave on side B, track four, second to last song, Deed I Do.